You are listening to another No Fair Remembering Stuff, the Tuesday edition of the Professional Left Podcast, and available wherever you get your podcasts, and at our website, proleftpod.com, where you can also contribute to this podcast. There is a Patreon button at our website, or you can mail us a letter and or contribution at the Professional Left Podcast, P.O. Box 9133, Springfield, Illinois, 62791. And it's not safe for work. And we're opening today's show with a quiz, a quick unfair quiz. I read off a bunch of numbers, a set of numbers, and asked Blue Gal to guess what they all had in common. And I had no idea. He said, I'm yeah. going to read you these numbers. You tell me what they are. And I went, I do not know. Is it a They're Fibonacci not crimes. Sequence? They're not. It Fibonacci? has nothing to do with math. No. You sure? I was it's told sure. there would be no math. Yeah. You add them all up and you divide by three and you get, no. you know, my and birthday. It wasn't, no. it wasn't like a Wordle quiz where, you know. Pick the, pick the numbers that aren't here and make them into something. Right. Um, but, and uh, it's important to note, this is not the complete set of all these related numbers. These are just numbers I sampled from the complete set. And here's a clue. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Lord, it's good enough for me. All right. Give me the numbers. Here we go. 66, 68, 70, 365, 375, 482, 793, 800, 992, 995, 1000, 1033, 1200, 1284, 1370, 1533, 1600, 1656, 1719, 1736. This is just a cognitive test. I'm just reading these off. <laughs> you can read them as numbers, like 1773, if you want. All right. That's all right. 17, uh, 1,773, 1,844, 1,890, 1,915, 1,933, 19... And left or right? Better left or right? You went for an eye exam this week. Uh, <laughs> 1,954, 1,972, 1,994, 1,999, 2,000, 2,011, Two zero one five. Yes. And if he'd read them as 1972, 1994, <clears throat> 1999, 2000, 2011, and 2015, you might yes. also have realized that these are years. They're years. Uh, it turned out that these were just a few of the years during which notable people or groups with followers. Yeah. Substantial followers. Substantial followers predicted the end of the world. It's the end of the world, Blue Cow. The, the end, end of the world. Of the world. If yep. you've never seen Z-Z-Z-E-E, -E, end of the world, go watch that on YouTube. It is hilarious. Mm -hmm. But it is all about predicting the end of the world. From 66 to 2015, there's like, you know, 50 of them listed here, but there are many more. There are hundreds of them. And there are more after uh, 2015, and there's more like predicted into the future where I'm going to be dead, so you can't hold me accountable for being wrong. <laughs> In 2099, mm -hmm. the world will end. Yes. Uh, in February of 1524, for instance, uh -huh. a group of astrologers in London predicted the world would end by a flood starting in London. 
And this was based on calculations made in June of 1523. So you know it was accurate, Driftglass. Of course. They used math. But here's the deal. 20,000 Londoners left their homes and headed for higher ground in anticipation of this world-ending flood starting in London. I I think it had something to do with Doctor Who because (laughs) all major world events for some reason happen in England. I don't know why. wound up debunking that, I'm sure. Um, Another one, Martin Luther. Yes, that Martin Luther, the German priest and professor of theology who is best known for starting the Protestant Reformation ever heard of it. He predicted the end of the world would occur no later than the year 1600. But there was some disagreement from Christopher Columbus. That Christopher Columbus? Yes, the the guy that we now forget about on Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah, that guy. Um, he claimed that the world was created in 5343 B.C. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, boom. Based on his calculations. On a Wednesday. And mm-hmm. it would last 7,000 years. So assuming no year zero. <clears throat> yeah. Don't start that fight. He felt that the end of the world would come in 1658. Mark my words. Boom. Boom. Have I ever been wrong before? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the famous Puritan minister, some of you might know him, Cotton Mather. Oh, I had to read the world would end in, in the year 1697. And after that prediction failed, he got some mulligans. He revised the date uh, of the end of the world two more times after that. Because you get to do that when you're Cotton Mather. And when you live a really long time like Cotton Mather did. Yeah. Uh, John Wesley, founder of our United uh, Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. We are now United Methodist. uh, He foresaw the millennium beginning in 1836. He wrote that Revelation 1214 referred to 1058 to 1836 when Christ should come. Right. Boom. Uh, Herbert W. Armstrong, the founder of the Worldwide Church of God, told members of his church that the rapture was to take place in 1936 and only they would be saved. All, all nine of them would be saved. After the prophecy failed, he also changed the date uh, three more times because, you know, yep. who's who's there to hold him accountable? On a more uh, less religious plane, perhaps, but not less faith. Um, along with various Indian astrologers, Gene Dixon, who was one of the best-known American psychics and astrologers of the 20th century, she predicted a planetary alignment on February 4th, 1962, which would bring about the destruction of the world. The end of the world! Oh, not again. And uh, as a result of the Indian astrologers' predictions, mass prayer meetings were held in India. And it worked, Blue Gal. They saved the world from destruction by the alignment of planets, which has nothing to do with anything. Now, uh, as uh, bringing us up to date a little bit, in 1976, the bicentennial year, Pat Robertson predicted on his 700 Club TV program that the end of the world would definitely come in 1982. Oh, man. Yep. Hal Lindsey, who is still alive, made a fortune writing a series of popular apocalyptic books beginning with the late great planet Earth. Lindsay was sure the world would end in 1988 in fulfillment of biblical prophecy, Driftglass. There, there is a non-trivial chance that that was made into a crappy movie and that my dad took me to see it. Oh, Lord. Um, but it might have been the Boggy Creek Monster. I forget. There were a lot of bad movies my dad took me to see, for which I'm forever grateful. Um, infamous bigot and God grifter Jerry Falwell said that God would come to judge the world on January 1st, 2000. 
you know what? Falwell's dead and the world is still crooking along, doing just fine. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Specifically, this Christian version, so-called, of the end of the world based on the Revelation to John, which is the last book of the New Testament in most people's Bibles. Right. Uh, The book is also called the Apocalypse of John. But the word apocalypse has nothing to do with destruction or the end of the world. Nope. It's just the Greek word for revelation. Yeah, things that are revealed. Context, yeah, really. In this context, and here context means everything, apocalyptic literature is not about nuclear wars or zombie plagues. It simply refers to a specific genre of biblical writing that had a specific meaning and purpose to the people it was written for during the time it was written. Yeah. Basic, basic stuff. Now, compared to the relatively straightforward language that most of the Bible uses, you know, there are a lot of begats in the Bible, people having kids and them having kids, battles that are won and lost, and there are good kings and there are bad kings, and God is just smiting people all over the place, left and right. All the smiting. Wiping out, you know, all of humanity, wiping out whole cities because, you know, he's pissed. Apocalyptic writing seems to us modern readers to be deeply bizarre if you don't know what you're looking for. This is because it was written in a very specific kind of symbolic, metaphorical code so that the authorities it was criticizing wouldn't murder the author. Kind of important. The genre of writing was familiar to its intended audiences at that time as the tropes of Westerns and hard-boiled crime novels and science fiction are to audiences of our time. Now, we're not evangelizing here. We're making a specific point about our current politics and how fundamentalist religion is influencing that and why it got to be that way. So please bear with us. So let's look at the original text. The subject of the book of Revelations is about the Roman Empire as it existed in the first century AD, period. Full stop. That's all it's about because everything about the Jewish state during and after the life of Jesus from the minutiae of their daily life to the laws they had to their theology was massively influenced by the fact that they were occupied by the Romans. Mm-hmm. And remember, the Jews expected a Messiah who would drive the Roman occupiers the hell out of their country and restore the independence of their kingdom, right? That was the purpose of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. But for followers of Jesus, by the time the book of Revelation was written around 96 AD or CE, depending on how you talk about it, their Messiah had come and gone. Right. The Christians believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had been crucified by the Romans. And it was looking like the whole kingdom of God thing was a bust. Yeah. The Romans had crucified their leader. Mm-hmm. And we went through a long thing about this in Sunday school this past Sunday in our commies. We have a commie Sunday school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about how. Jesus must have been seen by the Romans as a nonviolent revolutionary. Yes, because dangerous. if he was a violent revolutionary, they would have had thirteen crosses, right? And they would have wiped out Jesus and all of his followers. But the way mm-hmm. the Romans handled nonviolent revolutionary movements was to just hack off the leader, right, and let the followers scatter. And they and would never it, have wasted iron nails and a cross. On a nobody. And, and all of the military people that had to do it. Right. On a nonviolent movement. He was a dangerous guy, but he was not a violent guy. And that's why he was publicly humiliated 
and and right. his and, body and was hung that out threatened his followers right and, and told them to stay in line and it, then if another ruler popped up 12 years from now or whatever they'd hack him off too yeah easy but that was their practice mm-hmm. and so uh the romans had crucified jesus uh, and they were still large and in charge 96 yeah. years later, right? No sign. No sign of any weakness there. No. They'd conquered the known world and were more powerful than ever. They seemed eternal. On the other hand, the Jewish state had, by this point, been through a series of uprisings against Rome, all of which had been brutally suppressed because Rome could not afford to let it get around that you could oppose them and get away with it. That's how they held their empire together. Exactly. The last major uprising, the one the historian Josephus witnessed firsthand and wrote about, happened in the year 70. Mm -hmm. Rome took the uprising so seriously that it brought down three legions, which were guarding the borders of what is modern-day Syria, to crush it. This was the Roman equivalent of sending in the tanks and aircraft carriers. Mm -hmm. Roman legions destroyed the temple that was the center of Jewish religious life, looted it of everything of value, killed thousands, and effectively ended the Jewish state and drove the Jews into exile until the establishment of Israel 19 centuries later. That's the impact the Romans had on Israel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when they talk about like a Carthaginian peace, uh-huh. the way the Romans dealt with their enemies was wipe them off the face Crush of the earth them. and destroy them, from, wipe them from history. As mm-hmm. if they never existed. Um, yep. And there were other Jewish uprisings, other uprisings later on, but there was no Josephus to record them. But the Romans dealt with them all the same way, which was brutal, total suppression. Now, about a quarter century after that uprising, that total defeat by the Romans, Jewish state is destroyed. That was when the book of Revelation was written, probably by a guy from, Ephes- uh, I'm sorry, Ephesus. Ephesus, yeah. Ephesus, known as John the Elder, who was living in exile on the island of Patmos. And if you were one of the Jews living in exile or on the outskirts of whatever was left of Jerusalem, you knew exactly what John the Elder was saying in his writing. The book of Revelations is a revenge story, a tale of revenge starring Jesus, who's going to come back on a horse with a sword, which he never, ever had in life. He was a, yeah. he was a pastor of peace and justice, had nothing to do with violence, but he's going to come back on a sword with a sword in his hand, and he's going to take down the goddamn Roman Empire like John goddamn Wick. John That's Wick. It. It's going to be yep. John Wick 13. It's like it's like they <laughs> killed Jesus's dog. And he's coming <laughs> back from the dead to kick ass and not take names. That now, this really is, a, is the way to look at the book of Revelation. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's John Wick minus 100. Yeah. Right. And and it's, it's all done in this weird language. It was a holy kind of make good for all that his people had suffered, for all that John of Patmos' people had suffered. Mm-hmm. But because of the intricate and frankly weird symbolic language used in apocalyptic writings, the book of Revelations was and is hard for modern people to read in the context in which it was intended. For example, there's a reference to the beast in Revelations, which is referring to Roman emperors, specifically Nero who is identified by the so-called number of the beast, which is the number 666, which is a scary number. And it's all over like the uh, omen and places like that. It's a mm-hmm. big deal in modern times. But in the ancient world, there was a system known as gematria, which is a numeric value assigned to a name or a word or a phrase, which was something sometimes used as a kind of alphanumeric code 
for actual people you didn't want to call out by name when you were writing about them. And this is really popular these days with the QAnon crowd. Yeah. They have calculators on their phone to determine the meanings of words based on the numbers of the letters. And, you know, you see women on that daily show with goosebumps because Donald Trump's number means one thing and it's the same as some other divine term. Um, But using that system, which was in practice in the writing of the book of revelation of all the possibilities of what six, six, six could be only one name adds up to that number that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Caesar Neron, which was the Aramaic name for the emperor Nero. Right. I got to insert here that my dad also thinks that the book of revelation is based on taking shrooms. (laughs) He could be right. He could could very well be right. Also, he could just be a really great fantasy writer. Right. Writing about with tremendous visual imagery, mm-hmm. again, about vengeance towards the Romans right. in code so that the Romans don't come after him. Which a code that other Jewish readers would understand because yeah. it's in the Old Testament. There are apocalyptic writings in like Daniel and yep. a few other mentions. So yep. this isn't totally foreign to this is totally foreign to everybody but the Jewish readers who are already familiar with the with the genre. And really want John Wick to come back, and I mean Jesus to come they back, really and, do. and give us revenge. Yes, right. okay. The beast from the land in the Book of Revelation probably referred to either the provincial governor of Asia, or to the high priest of the imperial cult, who jointly would have overseen the temple and its festivals in Ephesus mm-hmm. at just this time. The beast from the sea is the emperor himself. And that's made clear in a later passage in Revelation 17, where the symbolism of the seven heads is spelled out. Same thing with the false prophets mentioned in Revelation. These would have been recognized by readers at the time as the traitors who were preaching the divinity of the Roman emperor. And, you know, that goes against the first commandment in right. the Old Testament. That's that's the big gods, one. gods, yeah. like Nero is, is proclaimed a god, and that goes totally against biblical teachings of the Jewish people. It's idolatry. Ironically, it's idolatry. 2000 year old, 2000 years later, fundamentalists are all idolaters because yeah, they worship yep. an object called the Bible. Yep, so yep. the message was very simple. Screw the Romans, death to Nero and his lackeys and the false priests. Jesus is going to come back with a vengeance to punish our oppressors and reward the faithful. And that will be the end of the story. And that's very important because every story needs an ending. And working really hard for thousands of years is not a satisfying end to the story. That that was Jesus' intention. We're yep. going to create peace and justice and plenty on the earth now and here. And it's going to be a lot of hard work and it's going to take a really long time. That's not a satisfying, punchy ending to a story. Revenge <laughs> is a satisfying end to a story. <laughs> and it's all written in the kind of code that would give, you know, plausible deniability. To anyone who was telling the story. I was on shrooms. I didn't Don't know. Don't kill me. I, I wasn't, it was Nero. It could be any beast from the sea with it's a, a beast. A it's not yeah. anybody in particular, right? It's just right. some beast and the, with eyes and the whore of Babylon. <laughs> Don't even do even ask me about these things because I was drunk and on high and on shrooms at the time. But, but over time, as the Jesus movement stopped being a Jewish cult and started being its own thing among the Gentiles, and it became clear that Jesus wasn't coming back anytime soon, the book of Revelations began morphing into predictions about the end of the world. 
not the end of Nero, a specific Roman emperor who was already long dead. Mm -hmm. And you can see why it remained really popular. However warped its original meanings might have become, it was still a very satisfying story of retribution for the bad guys and rewards for the good guys, all wrapped up in sort of the hyper-arcane language of divine prophecy. All this is God's will. Yeah, well, and and you do want God to fight for you, right? right? And that the violence in this, I mean, it's very tempting Mm -hmm. to want John Wick to come back and avenge your enemies, Mm -hmm. right? So people who study the origins and history of Christianity or have useless degrees from Harvard Divinity School know (laughs) all about this, right? Yes, they do. This is not Uh, (laughs) new stuff. Uh, And we're going to piss off many biblical scholars by skipping over roughly 18 centuries of history, because (laughs) this is a 45-minute podcast on one topic and not the life's work of a team of Divinity School scholars. We're going to skip right past the Emperor Constantine adopting Christianity as the official state religion of the Roman Empire in 312 AD. Sorry. Sorry. Whoops. Uh, Even though it was a really big deal and Mm -hmm. it changed a lot of things that happened in Christianity to to make that happen. Uh, We're also skipping over the Nicene Council, all the heresies and the schisms, Galileo and the Inquisition. The translation of the Bible into the vernacular, another huge thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to skip ahead and go straight to the Niagara Bible Conference, which you (laughs) might not have heard of. This was held annually at Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, in Canada, at the Queen's Royal Hotel every year from 1875 to 1897, Mm -hmm. with the exception of 1884. For some reason, they didn't meet that year. Mm Mm-hmm. It was at these conferences that the very bad theology of biblical literalism that had been cooking in some Protestant denominations for centuries was workshopped and turned into a formal tenet of the branch of Christianity called fundamentalism. Aha. Ever heard of it? I've heard of it. I've heard of it. This was a reaction against the scientific revolution of the 19th and 20th centuries and the Enlightenment generally which some religious groups felt threatened the supremacy of the Bible. And you can see why. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Darwin especially threatened the supremacy of the Bible. Mm -hmm. If you want to see the results of that toxic theology dramatized, you really need to stream Inherit the Wind. And we recommend the original 1960 version with Spencer Tracy, Frederick March, and Gene Kelly. Mm Mm-hmm which is a lightly fictionalized version of the 1925 Scopes monkey trial in which John Scopes, who was a school teacher, was accused of violating Tennessee's Butler Act, which made it illegal for mm-hmm. teachers to teach human evolution in any state-funded school. Attention, moms for liberty, man. Right, yeah. moms for liberty, exactly. Uh-huh. That if you take a law like evolution and you make it a crime to teach it in the public schools, tomorrow you can make it a crime to teach it in the private schools, and tomorrow you may make it a crime to read about it, and soon you may ban books and newspapers, and then you may turn Catholic against Protestant, and Protestant against Protestant, and try to foist your own religion upon the mind of man. If you can do one, you can do the other. Because fanaticism and ignorance is forever busy and needs feeding. And soon, Your Honor, with banners flying and with drums beating, we'll be marching backward, backward, 
through the glorious ages of that 16th century when bigots burned the man who dared bring enlightenment and intelligence to the human mind. All of that brings us to the problem of what happens when the toxic theology of fundamentalism is applied to the book of Revelations about the end of the world. Now, the most embarrassing example of this and the most <laughs> profitable probably example of this is the massive success of the Left Behind series by Tim Lehane and Jerry B. Jenkins. This is a 16-book series, which has sold over 65 million copies and has hit the top spot of the New York Times bestseller list five times. But Tim LaHaye. Tim LaHaye. I apologize. Yeah. You know, it's this it's this language thing, honey. I'm, <laughs> I'm, speaking, I'm speaking about him in a deeply arcane code of my very own, uh-huh. which will become biblical prophecy in 200. Oh, sure. In yeah. 300 years, everything we say will be biblical prophecy. Yes. Yeah. Now, just in, in the back of your mind, imagine if a thousand years from now, a group of people gathered in Niagara Falls to say Batman was real. And they built an entire theology around Batman was real, Bruce Wayne was real, Gotham City was real, must have been destroyed by God, and revengeance is what's supposed to happen. That's sort of what happened here. This very specific fairy tale invented for revenge purposes was turned into a literal theology about the literal end of the world. But it does not end there. There's also the Left Behind The Kids series of 40 novellas written for teenagers with the same plot as the adult series, but the main protagonists are, you know, teenagers, young adult novels, novellas. There are also a whole series of graphic novels. There have also been a number of movie adaptations. The first Left Behind The Movie starred former Growing Pain star Kirk Cameron, and it kind of bombed. So, you know, you figure this isn't successful, we won't do it again, but the sequel... Left Behind 2, Tribulation Force, was released in 2002 and debuted at number two on the Nielsen's Video Scan Reports behind Spider-Man and was number one in terms of overall sales for two days on Amazon.com. The second sequel, they got smart with the second sequel, World at War was first released in churches on October 21st, 2005 for church theatrical viewings and then it was released via home video on October 25th. Now, Does it end there? No, it does not. There's also a video game series, Left Behind Eternal Forces 2006, and three sequels, Left Behind Tribulation Forces, Left Behind 3, Rise of the Antichrist, and Left Behind 4, World at War, which were developed by a publicly traded company called, I'm not kidding you, Left Behind Games. Wow, Left Behind Games. Unbelievable. Monetize this shit. Yep. It would have been bad enough if it were just that word apocalypse, which simply means something divinely revealed. But that came to mean something destructive and potentially world ending. But now there are tens of millions of Americans who firmly believe in the end times and in the Antichrist. They believe in signs and portents and judgment day and that good people like them will be swept up to heaven and Mm -hmm. all the bad people will burn in hell forever. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've mentioned this before, Driftglass, the book, The Great Disappearance, 31 Ways to Be Rapture Ready, (laughs) is in the top 20 of Amazon's best-selling books this week. Just wear underwear. 31 steps you need to take to be rapture ready. Ladies, wear underwear. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) And most dangerous of all, they think this is a good thing. Mm -hmm. That they, as true believers, should do everything in their power to hasten the end of the world so they can be in heaven. 
with Rapture Jesus that's right. and Keanu on a horse or right. whatever. That's that's how the story must end because stories must have an ending. Yep. Now, many of you might not remember this almost forgotten gem from the 1980s, but the, the article is from the LA Times in May of 2023, but it references something you may not remember. Quote, how a misreading of the Bible fuels many Americans' apathy about climate change. Christian theology and global politics can make strange bedfellows. Consider the intimate relationship between fundamentalist expectations of Jesus' return and market-driven disregard for the environment. The affair became public back in 1981 when Ronald Reagan's newly minted interior secretary, James Watt, once known for suing the department he went on to lead, was testifying before a House committee. He was asked whether he was committed to, quote, save some of our resources for our children. He answered, that is the delicate balance the Secretary of the Interior must have, he affirmed, to be steward for our natural resources for this generation as well as future generations. But then he continued, because he couldn't shut up about it, right. quote, I don't know how many future generations we can count on before the Lord returns, unquote. <sighs> yeah. Now, so, it's important to remember that most of these people, almost all of these people are actually true believers. They really do believe this stuff. They're operating with a kind of blind faith that is impervious to reason. And they are as fanatically committed to their poisonous theology as the men who flew planes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. So no matter how much liberals like me might enjoy watching the West Wings, imaginary President Bartlett shred an imaginary fundamentalist bigot using her own imaginary Bible, and you can search YouTube for Bartlett and the Bible to enjoy it. In the real world, this kind of reasoning doesn't budge them at all. In the real world, fundamentalists just shrug such things off as, you know, secular, liberal heresy, humanist nonsense, and they walk away doubly determined to save your soul and bring about the end of the world. And this is where we get into modern day politics. Yeah. Because these people have infiltrated Republican politics top to bottom. They are the most loyal, energetic, and extreme part of the MAGA Republican base. And they never let Republican elected officials forget it. Mm -hmm. So let's take a quick detour to the year 2000, the halcyon days, if you will, <laughs> of 2000 to show you how this power dynamic worked. Uh huh. In 2000, Maverick John McCain was running for president on the Straight Talk Express. Oh. And Straight Talk included taking on powerful Christian conservatives such as Jerry Falwell. Here's a quote from McCain again in 2000, quote, Neither party should be defined by pandering to the outer reaches of American politics and the agents of intolerance. Uh -huh. Whether they be Louis Farrakhan and Al Sharpton on the left or Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell on the right. Both sides, Driftglass. Both sides. But he did specifically call it Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell as agents of intolerance. Yep. In 2000. He did. And McCain lost. Yes, he did. <laughs> and it, part of this was George W. Bush did a despicable smear campaign about his adopted child. I mean, it was just horrible. It was racist and awful. And racist and awful. Mm -hmm. uh, but it worked with those voters. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bush embraced Falwell. Mm -hmm. It just just totally went, you know, I'm, I'm born again Christian. I'm saved. I'm this, I'm that. Mm -hmm. And at some point between 2000 and 2006, 
John McCain had his own revelation. <laughs> yes, he did. He sure did. <laughs> he figured out what party he was running in and what he needed to do to win that party. And mm-hmm. he sold out. I, I think, May- I think yeah. you might have come up with the title for this episode. What? The Revelations of John McCain. The Revelations of John McCain. In uh, May of 2006, he's running for president again. And uh, he, the straight talk John McCain is giving the commencement address at Liberty University and very publicly kissing Jerry Falwell's ass. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. He figured it out. Yeah. Now, in February of 2008, and this is where we go a little bit deeper, we also find the very same straight talk John McCain publicly thanking a pastor named John Hagee for his endorsement. An endorsement that McCain's very good friend and war buddy, Joe Lieberman, had arranged. By this time, Joe Lieberman, as most of you know, had fled the Democratic Party. He'd won re-election in Connecticut by running as an independent with huge backing from Republicans. And he would go on to give a keynote address at the Republican convention in 2008, endorsing John McCain. And Joe Lieberman loved John Hagee. He loved, loved, loved that man. Which, if you don't understand the codependent weird relationship between the conservative evangelicals in America and the far right in Israel, this would seem to make absolutely no sense at all. It's crazy. These two people can't, these two ideas cannot coexist in harmony. After all, Hagee calls the Catholic Church the great whore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Don't sugarcoat it, John. Yeah, right. And a false cult system. He is also rabidly anti-gay and anti-Muslim. He sees Illuminati plots around every corner. He said that Hurricane Katrina was God's punishment for the sins of the people of New Orleans. And he once preached that Hitler was fulfilling God's will for Israel. Uh-huh. That the the Hitler years were simply part of prophecy to move the Jews to Israel to bring about the, the predictions of the book of Revelation. Right. That it's all God's, God's servant, Adolf mm-hmm. Hitler, was yep. John Hagee. Absolutely. So how is it that Joe Lieberman, who has always been a militant supporter of Benjamin Netanyahu and his far-right Likud government, could compare John Hagee to Moses? To Moses. Which he did. He really did. This is from the Huffington Post of June 4th, 2008. Quote, Joseph Lieberman to headline upcoming Pastor Hagee Summit. Senator Joseph Lieberman is scheduled to headline Pastor John Hagee's 2008 Christians United for Israel Washington Israel Summit this July 22nd. In accepting Hagee's invitation, Lieberman became the most senior elected representative confirmed to appear at the annual gala. Last year, when Lieberman spoke at Hagee's Summit, so this is the second time, mm-hmm. he compared the Texas televangelist to the biblical prophet Moses, uh-huh. dubbing him an Ish Elohim or a man of God. Unless he rescinds his pledge to appear at this year's summit, Lieberman can be expected to deliver another soul-stirring tribute. Mm-hmm. Hagee's vitriolic condemnation of Catholicism is Jeremiah declaring Hurricane Katrina divine punishment for New Orleans' hosting of a homosexual rally, and his generally disturbing apocalyptic theology became national news last February when John McCain accepted his endorsement in a widely publicized ceremony, unquote. And I've got to say, John Hagee, when, during this time, we were still doing blog against theocracy and uh-huh. in favor of separation of church and state. John Hagee was one of our poster boys. Oh, he's, he's the worst. Just the worst. Because he absolutely believed that electing Republicans 
was critical to bringing about this kind of end of the world and and getting us all to heaven, getting his people all raptured up to heaven. Mm -hmm. That was his goal. And he really believes this stuff. And he's he's a hateful, angry, very popular uh, preacher. I believe John McCain eventually backed away from that endorsement, but he Mm -hmm. he accepted it. He took it with both hands. He wanted to win. And I think I'm going to do a very bad Joe Lieberman imitation now. I believe Joe Lieberman in the same speech said, my friend John, he, he had an even bigger flock than Moses did when he parted the Red Sea. Oh, God. He called them, I think he called them a mensch. You know, I mean, it mm-hmm. was just, it was sickening. And it was, if you didn't understand end time thinking, none of this makes any sense because mm-hmm. these are mindsets that govern the behavior of conservative fundamentalism. Because according to their theology, the end times can't happen and they cannot be airlifted bodily to heaven until certain events occur in Israel. Right. Now, these people are Donald Trump's most fervent supporters because he delivered on almost everything they asked for. They wanted right-wing judges and he gave them that. They wanted the repeal of Roe versus Wade and they got that. And almost as important as both those two, moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. This is from Vox. On May 14th of 2018, quote, this is why evangelicals love Trump's Israel policy. Hint, it has to do with burning lakes of fire, unquote. Now, the article is an interview with Elizabeth Oldmixon, a professor in philosophy, I'm sorry, a politics professor at the University of North Texas. Oldmixon, who, quote, studies the rather strange alliance between evangelical Christians and people of the Orthodox Jewish community who are stridently pro-Israel. Unquote. Professor Oldmixon estimates that the size of the end times evangelical population in the U.S. is around 15 million people, and you know who they vote for. Mm-hmm. The interviewer, named Sean Illing, asked her why these evangelicals are so damn interested in the fate of Israel. She answered as follows, quote, These are folks who believe that there will be a millennium in the future, a golden age where Christ reigns on earth, and they believe that before Christ re- will return, There will be a tribulation where Christ defeats evil. There will be natural disasters and wars and perhaps an antichrist, as the book of Revelation notes. Then at the end of that period, the people of the Mosaic Covenant, including Jews, will convert. Then after their conversion, the great millennium starts, unquote. And then the interview asks the obvious follow-up question. Hey, what about the people who don't convert? What becomes of those people? Well, According to uh, the professor, according to the evangelicals who believe this, they'll end up with the rest of the unsaved, which means they'll be wiped out and sent to hell, unquote. So not good news for the Jews who don't want to convert to fundamentalist Christianity at the last minute. The interviewer then says, so politics is a means to what they see as a religious goal. And she answers, yes, this is a movement in Christianity that is as old as Christianity itself. You have this group of people looking around for signs of the end times. And in the 20th century, when Israel was founded, this was seen as a major sign. This was electrifying for that community because the gathering of all the Jews in exile and exile in the Holy Land is a prerequisite for all these events unfolding. So for the subset of evangelicals in the 20th century, support for Israel became a really, really important political position, unquote. And I want to add here that in addition to having a degree from Harvard Divinity School, I also have a degree from Brandeis, which is a Jewish-sponsored non-sectarian college in Massachusetts. 
And uh, a number of my classmates were Orthodox Jews. Uh A number of my classmates were actually Israelis Mm -hmm. who had come to the United States to go to school. And there were there were mixed opinions among these folks, like there is among anyone. Mm -hmm. But there were a, a contingent of them who said, oh, yeah, these crazy evangelicals come to Israel and they believe in their heart of hearts, that I'm going to convert to Christianity <laughs> and or I'll burn in a pit of hell. Uh-huh. And one of my friends said, and we'll take their money. <laughs> right. That's the point. That's the point. We He's... love tourists who come mm-hmm. to the whole, to our country and spend their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that that's fine. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that the Likud party... You know, there are people in the Likud party who are like, yeah, you know, Lieberman is sucking up to the worst person in the world. Yes. But he's doing it to get elected and he's doing it for campaign donations from evangelicals. That's right. And that's it. You know. Uh, and as long as we don't look at the fine print of what happens after well, the end the, the, the my Israeli friend that I talked to you about this was like, no, we just think they're nuts. But, and 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 that's the problem too. Yeah. To, if I can quote, I think it's um, uh, Arnim Zola mm-hmm. from from the Avengers, the the uh, Captain America movie. Mm-hmm. You know, the insanity of the plan is of no relevance because mm-hmm. they can do it. The point right. is, and they elected these, Trump, and they'll continue to vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. Because they believe in their heart that this is true. And they're getting into a position where they could really, really do it. They could really yeah. bring about massive, they, they are electing global war. They are electing judges in, the, in some of these states. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. So if a nut job like John Hagee wants to hurry along the end of the world, he needs Israel to be intact, annexing real estate in every direction with its capital located in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And who did that for him? Oh, Donald the Trump man. did that for him. Mm-hmm. And this all ha- also happens to be exactly what zealots like Joe Lieberman want, which is why he was only too happy to support Hagee. It is literally an unholy allowance between the fanatics of faith, faiths that are traditionally hostile to one another, finding a reason to throw in together for profit, for actual genuine feeling about the future of the world, mm-hmm. uh, a strong Israel. You know, people in Israel who just want a strong Israel, like, hey, if we have a political faction that we might think is religiously nuts, but will support us to their dying day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, for profits and for profits, if you will. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So this brings us to May of 2018, and this from the Washington Post, quote, half of evangelicals support Israel because they believe it is important to fulfilling what? End times prophecy. End time prophecy. That's mm-hmm. why they support Israel. The Lifeway poll found that 80% of evangelicals believe that the creation of Israel in 1948 was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy that would bring about Jesus Christ's return to earth. Unquote. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, and that's how, why. And, yeah. and that's why I say this on Twitter. I say it a lot of different places. Stop trying to reason with people like this. Yeah. This is their faith. This is they this believe. This is their future with God. Yeah. yeah. And they're not giving that up because some liberal tells them that Donald Trump's a bad guy. That's right. not going to happen. Right. And 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 this connects to Trump now. Yeah. 
because the fact that Donald Trump is one of the most vile, corrupt, and depraved human beings currently walking the earth is waved away as easily as they wave away the science of evolution. It's all just a pack of secular lies. And anyway, even if it were true, God has used all kinds of imperfect people to achieve his ends. Using the Bible to prove the Bible is always very exciting. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. You know there are harlots in the Bible, and God huh? used them for right. his purpose. That's right. God's in charge, not Donald Trump. So we're electing Donald Trump because he's God's tool. Mm -hmm. And what about King Cyrus, huh? What about that? Check and mate, libtard. Oh, I guess we <laughs> lost. Yep. Yeah. Uh, this is from Vox. Quote, the comparison that comes up frequently in the evangelical world, and I had not heard of this before you and I started working on this episode, your class. Uh -huh. Many evangelical speakers and media outlets compare Trump to King Cyrus, a historical Persian king who in the 6th century BCE conquered Babylon and ended the Babylonian captivity, a period during which Israelites had been forcibly resettled in exile. This allowed Jews to return to the area now known as Israel and build a temple in Jerusalem. You got that? Uh -huh. The Jews are back in Israel, and Jerusalem is where their temple is. That comparison has become more and more explicit in the wake of Trump's presidency. Last week, an Israeli organization, the Mikdash Educational Center, I can't believe this happened, minted a commemorative temple coin depicting Trump and King Cyrus side by side. Uh huh. This was in honor of Trump's decision to move the American embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. It was among the most brazen public links between Trump and Cyrus, one that takes the years of subtext running through outlets like Christian Broadcasting Network and quite literally sealed the comparison in a coin. Mm -hmm. For believers who subscribe to this account, Cyrus is a perfect historical antecedent to explain Trump's presidency, a non-believer who nevertheless served as a vessel for divine interest, unquote. Which brings us to the present day and this from the Florida Phoenix. Quote, in Florida, apocalyptic politics are clouding the U.S. response to the Israel-Hamas conflict. End times Christians keep looking for signs and portents. Remember when a quarter of Americans thought Barack Obama might be the Antichrist? I sure as hell do. A lot of mm -hmm. people don't, but we sure do. They feared he'd oppose a one world government. As Dr. Peter Venkman says in Ghostbusters, a disaster of biblical proportions, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, and that he would trigger, you know, the apocalypse. That didn't happen. But end times Christians keep looking for signs and portents, wars and rumors of war. And by God, the Israel-Hamas horror is right up their alley. Yep. Where many of us see the vicious killings by Hamas and the indiscriminate bombings by the Netanyahu government as atrocities, fueled by 75 years of resentment, fear, rage, and oppression, as well as a radical Islamic refusal to accept the existence of Israel, evangelicals and the politicians beholden to them see the first quarter of the second coming, unquote. And do you know who else believes all of this nonsense right down to the tips of his tasseled loafers, Drift Glass? Mm -hmm. The man who is now the U.S. Speaker of the House. He mm -hmm. genuinely believes this shit. Yep. Mega Mike Johnson is a true believer. Yep. I, I am a Bible-believing Christian. Someone asked me today in the media, they said, it's a curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's, that's my worldview. 
And so, um, as I said, in our Kami Sunday School class, uh, we are reading and studying some videos by uh, John Dominic Crossan, who is the author of How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, Struggling with Divine Violence from Genesis through Revelation. And John Dominic Crossan is an ex-priest, Irish, of course. He's a monk. He's a former monk, right. And uh, he argues that original sin isn't sex, it's violence. Right. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how divine violence is... uh, Well, talk a little bit about that, Drift Glass, because you you and I sit together and... and Get a lot we out take of notes, and this again, this is if this if this stuff bores you or you you find it kind of itchy and don't want to listen to, it, that's fine. Just zip on ahead. We're we're talking about history, but that's what makes listening to people like um, uh, John Croson uh, interesting because mm-hmm. he talks about history. He talks about the culture of the in which this stuff was written as it was embedded in other cultures, as mm-hmm. in you know mm-hmm. the effect that Babylon had, the effect that the the Epic of Gilgamesh was infused into these stories. Mm-hmm. The fact that the the Jews had to adapt, the the that the Torah is is trying to tell them how to behave, and the clever Torah scholars are trying to find a way around it. Yeah. So the Torah yeah. says, God says, I own the land, I own all of it. You cannot trade it, you cannot buy it. You're all tenant farmers, you're all custodians. All of it's mine. Well, how do you get your your neighbor's land if you can't buy it? Well, you can always foreclose on it. You can yeah. use it as collateral yeah. uh, for a loan. And there's all this very clever, very smart people who are trying to find a way around all these rules that that their God is laying down. Their God said no usury, but but you know, <laughs> but maybe we yeah. can find a thing around that. And and the whole history of that is this is this race between these two visions of what's supposed to happen. And it goes right through the Bible. There's the violent retributive God, the God who says revenge and and retribution is what is what justice is about. You know, kicking ass and taking names, getting getting the people in that territory, wiping them out, taking over their land. That's God's John Wick. Work. Yeah, abs- this is the whole John Wick Bible. It's and it's yeah. satisfying, <laughs> you know. And and the 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 um, comparison I made when we were talking was the man who shot Liberty Valance, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is you know the shooting of Liberty Valance happens about two thirds the way through the movie, mm-hmm. but the rest of the movie is about how a man can't outrun that first act of violence that made him famous. Yeah. And that 30 years later, after you did all these amazing things, the only thing people want to hear about is that time you shot Liberty Valance. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when he tells them the real story behind it, nobody wants to hear it. They literally say, right. you know, this is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Right. And that is the Bible. Print the legend. It's, you know, there are a lot of things in there that are very interesting, but the the core of the teaching of that guy, of that yeah. particular person was not retributive justice. It was distributive justice. Mm-hmm. It was about mm-hmm. making sure everyone gets enough, that everything is fair, that not asking, how can I give to a charity to solve the problem of poverty? But why is there poverty in a right. land of plenty? Why is why, why is anyone poor? Why is anyone deprived? Why, why is any of this happening? And how do we build a system where no one is left out and no one is poor and no one is starving? That is the mission that that was given to the Jesus cult. And it's a really hard one because it's so much easier to talk about punishment and revenge and things happening to you because you pissed God off and you must have done something wrong and God is taking his, his axe out and beating you up because you sinned. And so you have all these people scrambling around looking for reasons why God hates them and why there's a drought 
and who do we have to sacrifice? And this relationship between these two things is, you know, there's the, how do you, how do you, how do you make up with a friend? You invite them over and you fix them a meal and Mm -hmm. you talk. And that is the interaction that the Jesus teaching believes you should have with, if you believe in God, with God. That is, when you're having a a meal, you're going to kill something. You're probably going to kill a lamb or you're going to kill a bird or something. But it's not intended as a blood sacrifice to that God. It's intended to create a feast that you can sit down with your pal God and have a chat about things. And there's this long, involved competition in these pages between the angry, retributive version of what you people should do that's based on a whole lot of stuff that was inherited by the cultures that conquered them. Mm-hmm. How do you mm-hmm. explain the Roman conquest of us? How do you explain Babylon? Right. God must be punishing us for something because God is all powerful. And if he's all powerful and we're stuck out here in the desert, we must have fucked up really bad somehow. Yeah. Or that, you know, it's just actions have consequences and empires rise and fall and bad things happen to good people and has nothing to do with divine anything. But how do you make a system where that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore or is minimized. And that's much more interesting to, you know, a socialist like me <laughs> than, <laughs> than is, you know, and, and what is it about capitalism that's destroying the planet? Right. And, right. Uh, and, and, and the fact that there is a religion out there that tells folks not to care about right, that. Right. Because it's, the end times are coming. Yeah. And so I don't have to worry about the air my children are going to breathe. Because they'll be in heaven. Because they'll be in heaven. With me. Yeah. And I don't have to worry about the poor, because if you're poor, that's a moral failing. You have failed, and you are being punished for your moral defect. And if only you would stop, you know, if you would only put this app on your phone where you can talk to your son about pornography and keep yourself and (laughs) keep each other in check. If you're only pure enough, if you're only pure enough, and if you only dislike the right people, and you you if you demonize the right people, if you hate the right people then nothing bad's going to happen to you. And that philosophy just so happens to fit perfectly with capitalism. Yes. Which rewards people who keep telling the wealthy that the reason you you have abundance is because you're better than everyone else. Yeah. You're the, you're the good people, person because right. and and God has blessed you with wealth for that. Yes. And you don't need to take care of the poor because the poor are poor because they're bad people. They're bad or they're, people. They're morally right. deficient people. And if only right. they would get saved, everything would be fine. And that kind of thinking, that kind of gross um, misinterpretation, that that grotesque evil misinterpretation, that very bad theology that runs right through Christian religion from like 300 on, because we we promised not to talk about Constantine, but, you know, once Constantine decided that we're going to make Christianity the state religion of Rome, it was kind of game over because it was like, okay, here's here's the deal. God can have all the stuff go on in heaven. It'll be great. All the stuff up there that I don't have to see, that I don't have to worry about, that can be your province. Then the earth is mine. Right. I can do whatever I want on earth because God has chosen me and I'm I'm a good Christian. And I am divinely authorized to do to anything be your I want. Leader. And That's right. trusting your leadership mm-hmm. is really essential to getting to heaven. Yeah. So it's it's so weird. Yeah. And, and the book and of Revelation. It is true Christianity is an absolute antithesis of capitalism. It is. And that, that we talked a little bit about when 
all these evangelists went to where it was, Argentina or Venezuela, and they all came back Marxists because- They all came back Marxists. They were like, there to oh, build houses for Habitat for Humanity, and yeah. they went, oh, wait a minute. Wait you a know, minute. The prob- we, we, we're happy that you're here to build our houses, but the problem is that uh, the banana companies are ripping us off. Yeah, are destroying our country. You know, the banana com- yeah. companies from your country are destroying yeah. our country. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, the whole point of this was not to get anyone to read anything we read or, or talk about anything we want to talk about, but that we take the history and the impact of faith seriously. You yep. know, the and it's having are- a huge impact on how people perceive uh, this horrible war that's going on, yep. the re-election, uh, so-called, of the so-called former president yep. is absolutely essential to their not only worldview, but future as heaven's apartment yeah. dwellers. Yeah, they're divine. This is this is this must happen because God has willed it. And if and if it didn't happen, somebody cheated. And somebody just, lied. Exactly. And somebody exactly. Cheated. Stop the steal is is a holy war. Right. And and that brings to mind also the uh, rearrangement or the mulligans as you called it mm-hmm. of. Oh, we're ju- we'll just have to do something else. Or we'll rechange the date. The date that we said the world was going to end came yeah. and went. So, oh, it must be 10 years from now. Forgot to carry the one. You know, right. that happens. Forgot to yeah. carry the one. It's another another 100 years or whatever. And we see this rebranding going on in the Republican Party all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it was a Tea Party. And, uh, you know, it it doesn't matter if it's it goes from one to the other without... In fact, I wanted to mention this, that, you know, Sean Hannity had a pep rally for the House Republicans after they elected a new speaker. He did. They didn't mention Trump once. Nope. In like an hour of TV. And it's all Republicans. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's uh, James Comer and MAGA Mike Johnson. And, oh, let's talk about the future of the Republican Party. Isn't this great that you're all together and you're behind Mike Johnson and so forth? Nobody mentioned Trump. Because they're getting ready to rebrand, right? And and you they're can see they're looking for the exit ramp. Yeah, and and here's the thing, and I'm going to do a little bit of shameless promotion here, if you don't mind. Okay. For a going on 19 year old post uh, from me, 2005, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, little red state fundy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for all of the all of my never Trump friends who saw who said nobody could see this coming and nobody understands what happened to the right and it all was crazy and blah 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 blah. After you've listened to this whole podcast where we promise not to talk about things that we ended up talking about, sorry about that. <laughs> um, I wrote a post back in 2005, one of the very first things that I wrote called Little Red State Fundy, which I've mentioned several times. It's, it's about the story of Little Red Hen, which you should all know if you were children and you were read that story if you're of a certain age, about the Little Red Hen that, that does all the hard work of, of planting the seeds and harvesting the seeds and, and, and milling the seeds and baking the bread. And nobody wants to help until the bread's ready. And then everybody wants a slice. And I transpose that over the rise of the evangelical Christian right. movement inside right. the Republican Party. There's all right. these, you know, the good Republicans, all your never Trump friends, all the ones who had nothing to do with this and never heard of it and never knew who Jerry Falwell was and had nothing to do with with, with uh, Rush Limbaugh. Mm-hmm. And they, they want to wash their hands of any involvement in any of that. That wasn't us. We were all Bill Buckley. We were all, you know, no, you weren't. 
No, the base of your party absolutely was not. And you used these people to get yourself elected and you made them promises, you made them all kinds of promises. And they licked the envelopes for you and they knocked the doors for you and they rang bells for you and they got your people elected. And now they want what you promised them. They want an end to Roe v. Wade. And you know what an election disaster that is for you. Yeah. And you're trying to stop it. And they came to cash that check. And now with that Donald they, Trump. With Donald Trump and two thirds of the Republican caucus. Yeah. And most Republicans in elected office across this country are either evangelical lunatics who, mm -hmm. who believe this shit or beholden to them and are terrified that if they cross them, they'll end up Mike Pence out in the parking lot. Right. Exactly. So, Even though he's a true believer, he's gone. He's gone because he crossed them because he's yeah. not faithful to, to the to the dear leader. He's not faithful to Cyrus. And so out he must right. go. Right. And 18, 19 years ago, I wrote this whole long post about how the day is going to come and, and you will live to regret your denial of this and your feeding of this and you're willing to tolerate this in your party just to get people elected. They will come for you. Little, little red state fund, you will turn on you once the bread is baked and say, now who wants some bread? And you'll all go, oh, I do, I do. And, and little red state fund will say, fuck you. I yep. run this party now. I and run this party. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm going to get my judges. I'm going to get my religious police. I'm going to burn books. And you're not going to do a damn thing about it because I own your ass because I got right. all of you people elected. And that was that has been coming down the pipe for decades. And anyone who tells you otherwise is either lying to you and you shouldn't trust them or was too stupid to see it coming, in which case you shouldn't trust them. Yeah. You know what? That's a very good ending, Drift Glass. Thank you so much. Oh, one more thing. Yeah. Uh, we really need more Patreons to make this podcast sort of cook along. We actually really do. I mean, re I really enjoy doing this, and I know that you do too, Blue Gal. But um, it is, uh, it's a little bit um, exhausting, and it takes <laughs> a lot of support to do. Yes, So if you does. can spare five bucks, if you've already kicked in, that's great. We have a couple of people who are hitting on hard times and can't do anything, and they wrote us a nice letter saying, and we understand that too. Believe yep. us, we understand being yep. strapped and having hard times and bills to pay. We understand all that. We're just saying if you can spare five bucks or if you know someone who can spare five bucks or if you can spare more, that's great. Um, or tell people about this podcast. We got some people listening to us who'd never heard us before through um, the Brad show, the Brad. Yeah. yeah. And, and they were like, I'd never heard of this before. And this is terrific. And if you know people who might like this sort of visiting history to understand how we got to where we are now. No fair remembering stuff. Bring them along and visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash pro left pod. And thank you for doing that. See you next time. See you next time. The professional F podcast, no fair remembering stuff. Tuesday edition is produced under a creative commons license. Copyright 2022-23, DGBG Productions.